Good morning. We are in the book of Revelation this morning. If you're here for the first time with us, welcome to Calvary Chapel. We've been studying in this book for a few weeks now. We're going to be going all the way through. But this morning we're in chapter 2, verse 18. We're studying the letters to the seven churches. These are letters that Jesus wrote, passed on through a messenger to John, who recorded them and sent them out to the churches. What's interesting is I don't really think he took each little letter and sent it to each church. I I believe he, he took the entire book of Revelation and sent it to each of these churches. So even if the church that received the letter to, let's say, Sardis or Philadelphia received their letter, they also received the letter to the other churches. And as we read this, you'll see here, let, let he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So all of these letters, all of the book is so encouraging because it speaks to not only an actual church, but any church throughout the ages that has some of the same challenges and difficulties that this church or a particular church would have. But it also speaks to the human heart because each of us have many of the same problems that the people in these churches had. So it's timeless. It's not just a first century letter, although it is. It's also very interestingly prophetic in the sense that as you go through all of the seven letters, you start with a, with a church, Ephesus, which really has a lot of the issues that the entire apostolic age dealt with. And then you get to the persecuted church of Smyrna. And of course, the time of persecution followed the apostolic age. And then you had a time of worldliness. The worldly church was, of course, Pergamus and or Pergamum. And we saw that so many of those things apply, not only throughout the ages, but today as well. And, and what's interesting is then we get to the next letter, which we're going to study today. And it follows suit that each of these letters speak to a time prophetically in church history because many, if not most, of the things that they were dealing with in that individual church were dealt with by all of the churches as a whole for the most part at that time throughout an entire era of hundreds of years. So it's prophetic, it's personal, it's practical, and it's also written to a particular church. So you can remember those P's if you like. With that, let's open in prayer and we'll get started. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've given us a word for today. And we ask that in this morning's study, we would find a way to see that your spirit desires to speak to our hearts individually, that nothing would hinder, distract, or keep us from knowing the truth and understanding what you want us to hear individually. That's, that's, that's of paramount importance. That is the most important thing. But Lord, also help us to understand the challenges that these churches were dealing with and also churches throughout the ages, churches today, that the things we're going to study today apply to all of the above. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read this brief letter in chapter 2 and in verse 18. To the angel or the messenger, we believe very well could be the pastor, the leader, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing now more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, 
who calls herself a prophetess by her teaching, she misleads the servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Then he quotes from Psalm 2. He will rule them with an iron scepter, and he will dash them to pieces like pottery. And just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so this is the brief letter. It's actually one of the longer letters of the seven. And as we saw last week, the worldly church represented a time in church history where that worldliness was making its way into the church, and and the church had sort of married up. In fact, that's what Pergamum means, elevated through marriage. And so the church had elevated itself to an appreciated status, an accepted status, but did so through compromise, marrying the world. Well, now this church, is, it just takes it a degree further. They, they not only become worldly, they actually start to become pagan. And there is and has been a time in church history when the church went in the direction of actual paganism. And we'll talk some about that today. But let's talk about the city. So you understand, Jesus wrote to these letters, or wrote these letters to these churches, and he wrote to churches in particular cities. And because the cities were of, of a certain character and nature, uh, he used certain language to reach them. And here we see that the church in Thyatira, which was like all the other churches, probably founded by Ephesian missionaries shortly after about 51 AD. Uh, this was a church we hear about in the book of Acts in chapter 16, because there is a woman named Lydia who was a seller of purple cloth. She was from this city, which was famous for dyeing cloth, in particular, purple cloth. So that's Lydia. We, we learned about her and studied about her in Acts 16. But she was from this city, and it was a very commercial city. And that's important to recognize that. This city was a place of commerce. It was specifically noted for its very powerful guilds. And if you don't know what guilds are, they're kind of like unions, but a little bit more controlling. A guild controls a particular trade. So if there were a guild for those that are goldsmiths or silversmiths, and we see some of that in the scriptures, they literally lock down the entire trade, and you really can't get into the trade or even sell unless you're a part of that guild. So it's kind of like a union, but a little bit stronger. And you'll see this city was known for these powerful guilds, and all of them were opposed to Christianity. And you can imagine why, right? We've seen this in the, in the history in the book of Acts where Paul would go into a city and he would reach that culture for Christ and they would throw away their idols. Well, who was making the idols? The smiths. The commerce of selling those things, those trinkets, those souvenirs. What would happen is a man like Paul or another uh, messenger of the gospel would come into a city and then sales would plummet. So the guilds, really were opposed to Christianity. Now, this city 
actually had a temple dedicated to Sambith, which was one of those goddesses. And that temple had a prophetess, and she uttered, or allegedly, uttered the sayings of God. So you can understand the language when he talks about the woman named Jezebel. Because there was an oracle of sorts, a woman, a prophetess, who claimed to speak for God. And she would utter these sayings, and people would go to her and and ask for advice and counsel and direction. and, And like a tarot card reader or an occultist, she would give them that advice. And many times, that advice would lead them away from God and would lead them in the direction of paganism and idolatry and even sexual immorality. Now, when we say sexual immorality, uh, what we're talking about is the practice of worshiping these false gods. It was filled with lots of terrible practices we don't need to discuss today. There's some little ears here. But you know, because you live in this country, what sexual immorality is. So having said that, that's that's the place that this church was located. And it makes sense that Jesus would speak to them in this way. But the names of each of these churches are important as well. They, they teach us something. There's so many layers to the teaching of the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches. So this name in Greek, Thyatira, means continual sacrifice. Continual sacrifice, which is what paganism is known for. You, you have this continual sacrifice to try to atone or improve or redeem individuals. So you're constantly giving, constantly making sacrifices in order to try to be good, in order to try to be the person that God will accept. Now, what do we know as Christians? There remains no more sacrifice for sin. Amen? Jesus Christ died on the cross once to save sinners. You know, he's coming again a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. But he was appointed to die, as all of us are, once to save sinners. So if you are a Christian who believes that you still need to do in order to have a relationship with God, then this letter is very important because this church really believed that there was more to be done in order to receive the grace of God. These things are sometimes referred to as we'll see as sacraments. The idea that you do something holy or sacred and God is, is approving of you and God approves you and loves you and because you do. Now listen, I grew up in a particular denomination that had sacraments. Many of you did as well. And so these ideas of holy acts or acts that are holy, things that we do, continual sacrifice, is really indicative of the mindset of a person who has not only embraced Christ, but something else. In many cases, idolatry, paganism, and we'll see that. So the church is called Thyatira. It means continual sacrifice. It's apropos. Now, as we see in verse 18, Jesus introduces himself to this church as the Son of God. Now, understand, Jesus didn't do that. He didn't oftentimes speak of himself as the Son of God. Most of the time, the Son of Man but not the Son of God. That's a very strong introduction, isn't it? Why would he do that? Well, these are the words of the Son of God. Notice the picture, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I've shared this with you before. Bronze is the medal of judgment in the Bible. Silver is that of redemption. Gold is deity. Wood is humanity. These materials have symbols that correspond to the teachings of the Bible. But as we see brass, the altar, 
of sacrifice outside the tabernacle in the temple was brazen. It was bronze. The bronze altar was used to sacrifice the animals. So it's a place of judgment. So brass means or signifies judgment. So his eyes, notice his feet are like burnished bronze, but notice his eyes, blazing fire. This is not that picture, you know, you get at the Bible bookstore. Or I don't know if they even have these anymore, Bible bookstores. It's kind of gone now since you got websites that sell all that stuff. I'm not a huge fan of all those trinkets anyway, but you'll, you'll go to a Bible bookstore and you'll see a little picture of Jesus holding the lamb, you know, over his shoulders or, you know, his arms out and he looks all loving and everything. This is not that picture. This is a decidedly different picture of Jesus, but it is Jesus, the son of God. And it's important to remember, we sometimes show him in our art and our, and our, uh, presentations as Jesus the man. And it's true, he's the son of man. He's Jesus, the, the, the loving Jesus. But he's also the son of God. And we've already seen in chapter one, the glorified Christ, the savior of all mankind. But wait a minute, this is interesting. Jesus approaches them in judgment with eyes of blazing fire. Now, he commends this church. In verse 19, there were good things to say about this church. There were. And this is one of the good things. Verse 19, I know your deeds. I know what you do. Your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. You get the impression, do, did, doing. You could, you could see this church, what they were up to. They were, they were busy. They were doing a lot. They did a lot. They were all about deeds. And and you'll find that certain churches, this church, of course, it's true of this church, they get really caught up in the doing in order to please God. And it's not bad. See, I think sometimes in our celebration of grace, we forget that it's not a bad thing to do for God or do for others. That it's not a bad thing to be involved in service and perseverance and deeds. Those things aren't bad. It's just, if you think that those things are going to save you or ingratiate you or, or make God like you, then you're missing the point and you're missing the meaning of God's grace. And many churches, this church included, felt that by their doing, they were approved by God. Listen, there are many people, and we'll get to this in a little bit, who think that that's true as well. That the more they do, the more God loves them. I'm going to tell you something. I've said it before. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. God loves you. Amen. So he commends his church. They were faithful in their work for the Lord. They cared for others. They were faithful in their beliefs concerning God. It wasn't that they believed things that were wrong. They were faithful, consistent, even increasing in these things. And that was all to be commended, but there's a correction, and we've read it already, and it's in verses 20. Let's start 20 and 21. It says there, nevertheless, have this against you. And you don't want Jesus with eyes blazing fire and feet of burnished bronze coming to you and says, I have this against you. I'm the son of God, and I have, a, I have this against you. What was it? You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, we know Jezebel from the Old Testament. She was a, a queen married to King Ahab, and she was a false queen. She married into power, but she was a vicious, awful human being. And uh, sometimes we end up with people like that in power, even in this nation. 
and we pray that God would bring them to repentance. And if not, then we pray for God's judgment. Because people like this can do awful things to others. And in the Old Testament, Jezebel was such a person. Awful human being. Well, that is the analogy. That is the parallel that Jesus makes to Jezebel in the Old Testament when he says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, it wasn't Jezebel, but I don't know that anybody ever had a daughter and said, you know what, let's name her Jezebel. There's certain names that are well off the table, Judas, Adolf, Jezebel. Probably not going to happen here at this church. We have a little baby dedication. Russ, Pastor Russ comes up and introduces us to Jezebel. No, that's not going to happen. That's one of those bad names, right? For reason, for reason. It's a shame. It's not a bad name, but it kind of is because of the connotation. So as we look at this, it says, who calls herself a prophetess. Now, isn't that interesting? Because I've already told you a little bit about the history of this city and how there was a prophetess in that city. So we know what Jesus is talking about. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual morality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Notice I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So this is apropos. This is something that Jesus needed to say to them because it was true for them in this church in the first century. They tolerated a false teacher. And this false teacher, she ruled as an illegitimate queen, just like Jezebel of old, of Israel. And and you'll sometimes see this even today. A man or a woman, they use false teaching and they walk around like a, a queen or a king. And you know, it's sad because this woman claimed to speak for God as a prophetess, but clearly she didn't. She misled Christians into sexual sin and idolatry through her teaching. She led people astray. I'll tell you, when I first got called into the ministry, my greatest fear, yes, my greatest fear, my greatest fear would be that I could possibly lead someone astray. James talks about don't desire to be a teacher. We're held doubly accountable. We have the greater judgment. If I lead somebody astray, I'm held accountable in a way that someone who doesn't lead someone astray isn't. So I always took that very seriously. So my desire to study God's word and get it right as much as I could and make sure I didn't teach false things or, and if I didn't know something, to be honest and say, you know, I'm not really sure, that was very important to me early on because I didn't want to lead people astray. Now, I know some people that are very dogmatic in the pulpit. And they'll tell you the way you should believe. I'm, I'm not one of them. I, I, I am a pre-tribulationalist. I'm a premillennialist, a dispensationalist. But you know what? If you're not, that's fine. And if you don't know what that means, and you probably don't, that's fine too. The important thing is we love Christ. Amen? So I'm not dogmatic even about the eschatological theories I have. Do I think I'm right? Well, more right in believing that than maybe another theory, but who knows? I, that's what's it's so important to me that I recognize my job is not to tell you how to think. It's to talk to you about Jesus, to introduce you to Jesus, to bring you closer to Jesus, and to help you to study his word and come to conclusions for yourself. We see very little of that today, even in the church. Most people want to write a book and tell you everything you should think and how you should think and what you should believe. That's just not who I am because I don't want to be a Jezebel. I don't want to lead people astray. But this woman did. 
And when confronted, and clearly she was confronted, she was unwilling to repent. Despite God's grace, God showed her grace. Now, I don't know the relationship she did or didn't have with God. I just know that God gave her an opportunity to repent, and she didn't. And then they were warned. Notice the church is warned, not Jezebel. The church is warned. In verse 22, it says, So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. And I will strike her children dead, that is, those that she influences, and that all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now, you can look at that last verse, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. You can look at that as a, ooh, that sounds scary. Or, wait a minute, this church really did have good deeds. So someone says, you're going to get what you deserve. Does that scare you? It probably should. But if you're doing good things, that doesn't really frighten me. I will repay each of you according to your deeds. If they're good deeds, then like James talks about, faith without works is dead. Well, good works, that's, that's fine. But for the person that wasn't doing those things, that's a scary statement. You're going to get what you deserve. I don't want what I deserve because I know what I deserve. It's called hell. What I get is so much better than what I deserve. It's God's grace and mercy. Amen? So this is a warning to the church, not to Jezebel. I, I, I think it's pretty clear that that, that ship has sailed. She was given an opportunity to repent. She did not. She's going to suffer. But they were warned that their church would soon be judged if they didn't repent. They were tolerating sin. Now, the last church we studied last week, Pergamum, they were tolerating worldliness. And as a result, sin had entered the church. But this church was tolerating sin, even some within it, practicing it openly and promoting it. And so things have gotten worse in terms of us discussing the problems within the first century churches. This is, this is bad. This is not good at all. This is not hard to imagine either today, because it happens, unfortunately, all the time. But this woman, she would become sick, her followers would suffer intensely, and those that continued to follow her teachings would be judged by God. This is why I don't get too, too upset, unless I watch too much news, why I don't get too, too upset when I see these people, these empty-headed fools, saying things against us as Christians or even conservatives. I don't worry too much because, you know, God searches the hearts and the minds. So even if it doesn't come out of their mouths, he knows what they're thinking and what they're feeling. He knows what they believe. Now, wait a minute. Does God need me to send him a petition in prayer to judge those fools? No, I still pray that way. But God doesn't need us. We need God. And God will get involved when he's ready to get involved. And when it's according to his time, he'll get involved. And when he does, there will be no mistaking that he got involved. I look at this description of the false teachers, and I think about how many false teachers have been exposed just in my lifetime. And I think to myself, you know what? That's fine. If God has chosen to judge those that teach things that are wrong and bring people into a a, a terrible way of life and lead them astray, then I'm good with that. It'd be better if they repent. Jesus says so. But if they don't, I trust God with his judgment, just like I trust in God's grace and mercy. So as I look at that, I realize this this could have gone better. It didn't. It wasn't. And the Lord is approaching them as the son of God, making it very clear you need to get your house in order. 
You need, this, the church needs to deal with this and stop embracing sexual sin. And it was getting worse. But then he comforts this church. And as I've said, he already told them in verse uh, 22, or actually in 23, I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Again, that's an encouragement in and of itself, unless you're not doing the right things. But then he goes on to say, now I say to the rest of you, notice there were many within the church that were not involved in these things. There was a large percentage that were, but they were tolerating this woman and people involved in this type of false teaching. But he says, now I say to the rest of you, that's the remnant, the rest of them, in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned, notice how he describes her teachings, Satan's so-called deep secrets. You know, a couple of years ago, there's a book out called The Secret. I didn't even open the cover, but I said to myself, can't be good. Because God's love is not secret. Anything that's a secret can't be good. So Satan's so-called deep secrets. And notice he says, I will not impose any other burden on you. I'm not asking you to do anything because you're fine. But notice that's any other burden. What was the one burden he would impose upon them? Deal with these people. Deal, deal with this prophetess. Deal with the people who are following this prophetess. Deal with this false teaching. Deal with it. Don't let it go unchecked. Call it into question, correct it, and move on. He says, only hold to what you have until I come. That's the challenge. Hold on to what you have. It wasn't that what they had was bad. It just, they needed to hold on to it, not let go of it. And in these dark days in which we live, and as our nation is at a crossroads, and it seems things could go very well over the next two years, or they could go very poorly, or the whole world could blow up. And, and by the way, in my lifetime, I grew up in the Cold War, during the Cold War, Cold War. It's always been like that. I remember the Berlin Wall. I remember nuclear annihilation. I remember all those things. I remember growing up. Some of you remember air raid drills, right? Remember when the, 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 the signal would, would sound and all the kids would either go under their desk or hide in the hall. Like, this is nothing new. I, I love it. I talk to young people. They go, things are so bad. Really? I lived through 1979. They were pretty bad. I mean, the president we had at that time was almost as bad as the one we have now. Is it okay to say that? Or do you have eyes and ears? So as we look at the state of our economy, as we look at, I mean, my goodness, the, the state of our church, not our church personally, but the church, we're the body of Christ, the state of our culture, as we look at all of the things that we're going through and the things you're teaching in schools and the politics and the nastiness and the corruption and the graft and all the things we look at, things are bad, but I'm just maybe this is encouraging, they've pretty much always been bad. Sometimes it's been worse than others, but wait a minute, what's, is our hope in those things? I'm really looking forward to the midterms. I think they're going to go well, but even if they don't, is our hope in a political system? Better not be. Better not be. That, those types of things can be rigged. So what is our hope in? Our hope is in Christ. And if your hope is in Christ then you can hold on to the things that you have. Hold on to what you have until I come. Well, that's what he tells this church. He doesn't ask for anything else from them except to remain faithful. That's all you need to do. This wicked woman, she taught deep secrets. They were actually the lies of Satan. Deep secrets are always the lies of Satan. 
just get that into your brain. If someone says to you, ooh, I know you go to Calvary Chapel, but, you know, they just teach the Bible. What you really want to study are the deep secrets of God. Yeah, not the deep secrets of God. Not at all. We have things like Kabbalah, mysticism. There are um, certain sects or, or cults within Christianity that teach these secret teachings. Uh, yeah, you know where it all comes from, right? You know that. The deep secrets of Satan is what they are. And they're false teachings. And so the faithful within this church are encouraged to wait. Wait for what? Wait a minute. Let's go back and look at it. Only hold on to what you have until I come. That's where your hope is. That's the blessed hope of his appearing, as Titus The book of Titus says, Paul says to Titus, see, if your hope is in anything other than Christ's return, you're going to be sorely disappointed in this world. You are. Because that's our hope and hold on to what you have until he returns. Amen. That's the encouragement this church received and the encouragement I can share with you. Now, in order for them to overcome, they would have to obey Jesus. Look at what verse 26 says. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end. See, you want to be an overcomer, you have to do what God has called you to do. How do you know what God has called you to do? You study his word. By the power of the Spirit, he gives you the ability to obey his word. But if you don't know his word, you're not going to know what the right thing to do is. Churches that teach perversion, churches that teach false things, don't teach the word of God. How could they if they taught the word of God where it says that homosexuality is a sin and they couldn't fly that rainbow flag out front? They couldn't be accepting to everyone. That is a very sarcastic tone I used. Accepting, of course we're accepting to everyone. Everyone can get saved. Anyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved and should be saved if they call upon the name of the Lord. He'll in no way cast down anyone that comes to him. But you got to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And when you put a symbol of sin in front of the church and say everyone's welcome, that's not repentance. That's something else. In fact, it's the deep secrets of Satan, if I can go so far as saying it that way. So understand, we love all people, love them enough to tell them the truth and help them to understand what is right so that they can hold on to that until he returns. They won't be ashamed at his return if they do. So you have to obey Jesus to overcome. And Jesus would grant this church his own authority over the world of men. And he quotes from Psalm 2, verse 9. And we read it already. He's going to rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. That's our conquering king. When he returns, he will deal with these individuals in government. He will, he will deal with the globalists. He will deal with the people who are, are, are teaching false things in the churches. I don't need to deal with those things. I need to hold on to him until he returns. And that's it. And teach the word of God and do what he's called me to do. Trust Jesus with the rest. Now he says something else. He says, I will also give him the morning star. And I want to freak anybody out because Halloween's coming up. But The thing about the morning star, and I wish people did a little bit more reading before they used terms. Lots of people give Satan a name. Lucifer. Again, another name no one is naming their child. (laughs) Right up there with Judas and Jezebel, right? Adolf. We're not going to have any baby dedications. Lucifer. Look at little Lucifer. But I'll tell you this. The word morning star is Lucifer. It means light bearer. That which bears light. And unfortunately, 
Because of some misinterpretations, people think that that was somehow Satan's name. Uh, because of some references in the prophets that talk about all, you know, the morning star and the, the, you know, that has fallen, it's a description of Satan before he fell. And it makes sense that if he was an anointed cherub and, and before he fell, he would be a light bearer, right? That they would use a, a, a term, not a name, but a term to describe him in that way. But then he fell and he's now Satan or the devil. But everybody calls him Lucifer. It's not his name. It never was. In fact, the only person that can correctly be described as Lucifer is Christ. He's the light bearer. And that phrase, the morning star, is Lucifer. He is, now listen, I know that's weird to say it that way, but I'm just letting you know the original language and how people get all caught up in, in things that, because they don't really have an understanding of what words mean. They come to conclusions that aren't true. I'm not going to call Jesus Lucifer. I'm not saying that because that's just weird. I'm saying that he's the morning star, and in the original language, that's what you're dealing with. So it refers to the bright glory of the planet Venus, which is visible in the early morning. Now, of course, in the night sky, you have the moon, right? That's, that's the brightest object in the night sky. You'll sometimes see Jupiter, which is the third brightest, but Venus is the second. It's the brightest planet, and it's often visible in the morning, depending on the time of year. So it's a wandering star. In Greek, that's planet. It means wandering star because it doesn't follow the same patterns that the other constellations do. The Greeks called it a planet. And it is a planet, of course. We know that. But to anyone else, it might just be a star. It was the morning star. That's a description of Jesus, not the devil. That's a description of Jesus, the bright glory of Jesus. Through Jesus, we receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And Jesus is the morning star that enlightens us with his glory and with his truth. The day star that arises in our hearts, according to Peter and 2 Peter. So again, I'm not making a weird doctrine out of this. I'm just making a point. Be careful how much you give Satan through false interpretation of the scriptures. Don't give him a name. The scripture hasn't given us whatever that cherub's name was before he fell. So I don't think we need to give him that. He's a liar, a destroyer, an accuser, an opposer, a murderer. And I'm not going to do a whole study on Satan, but it, it suffices to say you don't want to even really think too much about him other than what the scripture tells us and to be on our guard against him. Don't, don't be giving him names. So that's what we're told. To overcome, this church would have to embrace Jesus, the morning star. They would receive, as they overcome by obeying his will, they would receive Jesus. Jesus is always the reward for our overcoming. Every one of the messages here said, to him who overcomes, I will give. And it's a poetic description of himself, Jesus. By doing his will, overcoming, you will receive that morning star who is Jesus. If you're looking for another reward apart from Jesus, it doesn't exist. He's all we need. He's the great and wonderful reward, both the one who achieved our salvation on the cross and also the reward for that salvation given to us. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Precious Jesus. If you're looking for something more like the deep secrets of Satan, you're in trouble. Because why would you want anything other than Jesus? So this is the message to this church of the first century, the church of continual sacrifice. But it parallels to a time in church history that still exists today. And let me give you a little disclaimer here. I'm not here to offend anybody 
or denomination you may have come out of. And it's too, it's too broad to say that this describes the, uh, just one particular denomination. It was a way of thinking that started in 500 AD and exists until the present time. It describes a time in church history that started in 500 AD and continues now. That's why he says to this church, hold fast until I come. Well, this type of church never stopped being. The apostolic age is over. Even the time of persecution continues. The worldly church exists. But this time in church history ran from 500 AD to the present time. We call it the Roman church. Now, be careful. I didn't say the Roman Catholic church, although many aspects of the Roman Catholic church are symbolized or talked about here. We're not just talking about that. I want to remind you, if you know medieval history, that the Roman church was the church. Until the Protestant Reformation, there really weren't any other options. So when we say the Roman church, we're talking about a church that was centered in Rome that still exists today, but was at 500 AD the only church. In fact, they, many of these popes killed anyone who didn't want to be a part of this church. In fact, when you get to the Protestant Reformation, many of the reformers were martyred for opposing this church. But we're not picking on a denomination. We're talking about an entire time or era in church history. Let me tell you some things about the Church of Rome uh, through the centuries. The Church of Rome was and is still ruled by the papacy or the Bishop of Rome today. You know that. After the fall of the empire, that is the Roman Empire, the bishops, the head of the churches, they assumed unprecedented powers over the people. They maintained their power by working with the monarchies of Europe. Uh, They did this through forged documents. Hard to imagine a world where people forged documents to Take power, right? It's it's hard to imagine that. That's called sarcasm. So they did this through forged documents. One of those documents, the most famous or well-known, was the donation of Constantine. And this was actually promoted around 750 to 850 AD. But here's the thing. They started with this way of thinking long before that. It was purportedly issued by the 4th century Roman Emperor Constantine I. This document was supposed to have been written by him in the 4th century. It didn't show up until several hundred years later. That's probably an indication that it wasn't true. Um, This is how the Roman Church took power in Europe, through this document and others, but this one in particular called the Donation of Constantine. It's a long, boring document, but having read these things and read a whole book on this subject, it's tough staying awake. But learned enough to know this. It was a forged grant to Pope Sylvester I and his successors as inheritors of St. Peter. It's the donation of Constantine that established that St. Peter was the first pope and everyone who followed him received the mantle of that leadership over the church. It gave the church dominion over the city of Rome, Italy, and the entire Western Roman Empire. And they used a forged document to get that power. It was a reward, allegedly, for his instruction in the Christian faith and his, cure, and, and, and his curing him of leprosy. So it was this idea that, you know, uh, he, he was cured, donation donated this, this power because he had leprosy and, you know, he was cured by the church. It, it's, it's all bogus. It's all baloney. But it worked because people didn't know any better like they don't today. They don't take the time to look at the truth. And so they believe things that aren't true. Question everything. Can I, how about that? How's that? for a bold, dogmatic statement. 
question everything. How can you say that? Well, I don't know. Paul said the Bereans were more noble than the rest of the churches because they did one thing that the other churches didn't do. They searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was so, and it was Paul that said they were more noble. So yeah, go home and check out everything Pastor Tim teaches. Any pastor, everything your politicians say, everything anybody says, don't, oh, it was on the internet. I saw it on Wikipedia. Don't just buy everything hook, line, and sinker. Somehow when we see it in writing, or, or on one of those main, or should I say lamestream media organizations, we, we, we somehow just think it's true. In fact, I'm not going to go so far as to say that everything they say is a lie, but pretty much everything is. Or at least it's spun in a way that control you. So question everything. But the people of that time didn't. And so the Roman church took power through a forged document and other forged documents. This one in particular, donation of Constantine. Google it. <laughs> Just don't believe what they tell you. All right. So, <laughs> so the church definitely accomplished many notable things during this powerful era. That is the Roman church from 500 AD till today. They continued in their beliefs. If you look at what the church was teaching, most of what they taught at that time and throughout the centuries is pretty close to the mark. Most, not all. I mean, they, they, they definitely grade into areas that they shouldn't have. There was some secret teachings that were promoted that were wrong. But, but the basic fundamental truths like the Trinity, Christ's deity, like those things, they're there. But this church and this time in church history continued in their beliefs. They even increased in their works of charity. They were known for charity, 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 charity. Unfortunately, they also increased in their corruption through idolatry and sexual sin. By the way, bowing down to idols is idolatry. Lighting candles to idols is idolatry. If you disagree with that, think about it before you say that. It's the very definition their political power has only made them even more vulnerable to political corruption. That makes sense. Now, let's talk about occultic Romanism. And I want to say this. Occultic Romanism is not necessarily the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, let's be clear. Occultic Romanism is the occult side of the Roman Church that existed throughout the centuries and still exists today. Remember, just like the Church of Continual Sacrifice, Thyatira, not everyone there was caught up in this. Be very careful. I've heard some people say some very anti-Catholic things, and they shouldn't say them. Because if this church represents that time in church history, there were and are many people caught up in this system who love God and are waiting for his return and are holding on to him until he does. So let's be careful. I don't really like it when I hear anybody say something so absolute and dogmatic, well, you can't be a Christian and be a... Just be careful with that. Because can you be a Christian and be a sinner? Yes. Okay, so let's leave it there. So, having said that, this church definitely accomplished many notable things. But occultic Romanism prospered within this Roman religious system, and it did for a reason. That term Jezebel personifies a false religion, which was comprised of paganism, Judaism, and Christianity. That's what Romanism is. It's a combination of paganism, that's the statuary and all of those things that come from paganism. You do know that it comes from paganism, right? Rome was the center of paganism. When the church was taken over by Rome, or Rome and married the church, and they married each other, and things changed in the middle centuries, and then around 500 AD, 
All they did with the statues is give them an upgrade, just change their names. People were bowing down to statues that were actually of Aphrodite or Tammuz or Isis. They just changed the names to Mary. The little baby, well, that might have been someone else, but, you know, now we'll just call it Jesus. Why throw out the statue? We'll just use it. I know most people don't like to hear that, but it's still true. So that's what this occultic Romanism is. Again, occultic Romanism. This religion allowed sacraments to compensate for personal wickedness. They employed elaborate temples, statues, rituals, even used incense. And there were some within the system that sought God through monasticism, which is a very pagan thing. That is, locking yourself away into a life that is apart from the world. That's not how God has called us to live. Well, the church promoted and continues to promote Many false teachings. I'll give you a few, and this may offend some of you, especially since we're doing communion today, we're receiving communion. The Mass or transubstantiation. This is the idea that the elements actually become the body and blood of Christ. Now, just one little thing to think about. If Jesus was holding the elements at the Last Supper and he said, this is my body, and yet he was in his body, it couldn't have been his actual body. Linguistically, that makes no sense, right? So where do they come up with that? Paganism. Mysticism. That's where that comes from. I know you may have been taught differently, but that doesn't mean it's not true. The continual sacrifice, Thyatira, which denies Christ's finished work, promotes salvation through purgatory indulgences and the worship of sacred relics. Now, wait a minute. What's purgatory? It's a holding place you go, and if you pay indulgences, we can get you out. So your mother passes away. She wasn't a very holy person, but she wasn't so bad, so she goes to purgatory. Conveniently, all you need to do is pay some money and you can get her out. That's what an indulgence is. Or lighting a candle and putting a coin. Same thing. The worship of sacred relics. A saint would die and they would take a piece of their body and put it in a case and people would bow down and worship it. It still happens today. How about these false teachings? Papal infallibility. The Pope doesn't make mistakes. I'm pretty sure this last Pope was a mistake. Vows of celibacy. Vows of celibacy. Where does that come from? Not from Christianity. Ancestor worship. Where does that come from? Paganism. Clerisy, the idea that the clergy is, you know, the place to be. They receive all the power and everything. And how about these two doctrines? I didn't even know what these were because I did not grow up Roman Catholic. I grew up in Episcopalian. Close, but not, not quite there. Um, the Immaculate Conception. I would always hear the, the term the Immaculate Conception, and I would always think, oh, yeah, well, Jesus was... No, they're talking about Mary. Wait a minute. Mary was born without sin? And then there's the Assumption of Mary, which is that Mary ascended into heaven. Where do you get that from? She was the co-redeemer in some Roman teaching. Where do you get that from? Paganism goes back to Babylon. So be careful what you believe and and know why you believe it. Question everything. Listen, God has graciously given this religious system numerous opportunities to repent. And throughout this entire church era, the word of God has enlightened them with the truth. And if you came out of that system and you're studying the word of God, you're probably a part of that group of people who've been enlightened with the truth. Now, the reformation of the 16th century certainly challenged this church with the truth. Remember, the Roman church was the only church at that time. And despite these opportunities, this church has been unwilling to change. They still teach these things. Many people don't believe them. I will talk to many Catholics, who, Roman Catholics, who will say something like, oh, well, I'm, I'm a Roman Catholic, I just don't believe any of those things. I hear that a lot. 
That doesn't make much sense to me, but mysticism, it's a little bit different than just going to the Catholic Church. Mysticism is, is deep. It, it, it certainly prospered during this church era, still prospers today. The secrets of Satan, we know we call them today Luciferianism. Luciferianism. This idea of being enlightened, it's where the term Illuminati comes from. So this enlightenment that comes through knowing things that are taught that are secret, well, you know what? That is Luciferianism. But Jesus said, I'll give you the morning star. I'm the morning star. They're seeking secret knowledge. There's no secret knowledge apart from Jesus. Now, secret societies such as Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, the Knights of Malta, they prospered during this time in church history. There was a teaching of spiritual supremacy that revealed deep secrets in this world. These men still seek power through government today, just as they did in the past. Many of our founding fathers were involved in these secret societies. Many people are involved in these secret societies today. They bring people into power. And that's what that's all about. So, I don't want to be all negative today, but I do want to make this point. You probably don't want to be involved in a secret society. Thank you, John. You probably don't want to be involved in a secret society. Can anything good come out of that kind of interaction? Oh, but pastor, you know, it's kind of like a club. We just wear robes and chant. What? Okay. I made my point. It's interesting, though, that Jesus is, Jesus is promising this church, which represents this time period. He's, he's promising them power. The same coveted power and authority that these secret societies seek to attain in this world He's saying, I'm going to give you that power and authority. I'm going to give it to you. You don't need a secret society to have the power of Christ. And so what we do know is that he is the true morning star. He has all knowledge, power, and authority. And we know the scripture says the meek will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit that which was always the desire of the Roman church, power. That power belongs to him, and he will give it to us. We do not need to attain it in this world through corruption and sexual immorality and mysticism and occultism. Now, occultic Romanism and mysticism will be all that's left of the Roman church in the last days. Not now. I would like to say that there are many people who love Christ still within these systems, just like there were in Thyatira. But a day will come when all that's left, because the, I believe Christ will come and rapture his church, and who's going to be left? Just those who are involved in occultic Romanism and mysticism. I mean, God encourages his church throughout the centuries to hold on to the truth until his return. There will be a faithful remnant that will be patiently awaiting the Lord's return, and when the Lord returns, all that will be left are those involved in this mysticism. Listen, God does repay us according to our deeds, just like the wheat will be raptured from the tares. But that doesn't justify being in that same field with those people. Anyway, the apostates, that's a word that means pretty much being a member of a system like this. An apostate, the apostates that remain will suffer through the tribulation for their rejection of Christ. That's what's going to happen in the last days. The church will ultimately become the woman that rides the beast. In Revelation 17, we'll get there. But see, don't do this. Don't say the Catholic Church is the woman who rides the beast. Don't do that. You're painting with too broad a brush. What you need to say is the Roman Church, of which the Roman Catholic Church came out of, or is a part of, will one day be stripped down to just the people who embrace mysticism and occultism. 
and sexual morality. And at that point, it will be the woman who rides the beast. It's a better way of looking at it. Be careful. So, this system will be destroyed by the very world power to which she prostitutes herself. And we'll get to that in Revelation chapter 17, but not today. Listen, this describes the pagan church. And I just want to say this. The pagan church isn't necessarily just a Roman-based church. A pagan church can be any church today or at any time where secularism has led them to embrace the cultures around them. This could happen in an Asian country, a South American country. It doesn't have to just be in a European country or European continent. Anywhere in the world where secularism has led the church to embrace the cultures around them, that's a pagan church. They tolerate immorality and apostasy, which is false teaching, within the church. They tolerate political agendas and ambition for world power within the church. They tolerate false teachers and heretical and mystical teachings in the church. They promote flourishing social programs and humanitarian aid, despite these errors. Those are the good things they might try to do. But the overwhelming majority of the people involved in a pagan church aren't Christians at all, but there still remains a faithful remnant. So be careful. Don't paint with too broad a brush. I like to think of this as I ask uh, Anthony to come up to close out the service and we receive communion. I like to think of this as Lot syndrome. Lot had a little problem. He liked it in Sodom. He liked it. First, he pitched his tent toward Sodom. When Abraham said, you can have the area of the plains, he said, ooh, it's a nice view here. I can see those sinful cities. Next time we see him, he's living in the city. And then shortly after that, he has to escape with his life, and his wife doesn't even make it. The rest of his family, only his two daughters, escape with him. See, if you get caught up in a system like Lot was caught up in Sodom, if you get caught up in a system, when judgment does finally come, you might escape with your life. But why would you stay there? Why? There's things that are attractive about sin, and Lot was attracted to sin in Sodom. He wasn't involved in everything that they were, but he was involved in enough Was he righteous? Yeah, he was, because God saved and spared the righteous. He didn't judge the righteous with the wicked. But we can see by the way his life turned out and his family that the stain of sin from Sodom lingered long upon the descendants of Lot. So here's my question to you as we receive communion. True communion, which is a remembrance of Christ's body and blood. A remembrance. No magical, mystical transubstantiations today. No transformations of elements into, I don't even know how you describe the body of Christ in that way. But he said, do this as often as you do this, remember me. As we receive this communion supper, as we, as we have a time of remembrance of Jesus, if these describe some of the things you've been involved in or maybe are still involved in, ask yourself, ask Jesus the question, do I need to escape Sodom? Do I need to get out? I think you might. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we pledge our hearts to you and our lives to you. We thank you so much for loving us so much to tell us the truth. And Lord, I'm not super worried about anyone being offended because it's just the truth. But may nothing about my tone or the way I presented the truth be unloving or offensive in such a way that someone would 
walk out of here and feel like they couldn't receive your word because of the way I presented it. But Lord, I ask that you would just help us now as we remember your body broken, your blood shed for us, to give you our hearts and our lives, to hold on to you until you return. Oh, we're sinners. We've made mistakes. We've been involved in all sorts of things that are not pleasing to you, but now we just pledge our hearts and our lives to you and ask that you would deliver us from the world like you delivered Lot. Get us out of the world and get the world out of us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.